She howls, she bites She wants to take me down with all of her might She snarls, she growls But now I'm ready to put up a fight I've been in therapy for a hundred years And there's a piece that I finally found I've let go of so many fears And she is not gonna kick me around I'm taming my inner critic You're not welcome here Welcome to Wild Woman Wisdom. I hope if you have an inner critic that you're also doing a good job taming her or him. (laughs) I'll have to say some days are easier than others for me. But today, I'm excited to continue my conversation with Sarah Wilson. Sarah's a New York Times bestselling author and a number one Amazon bestselling author. She's the founder of IQuitSugar.com, and she has written several books on the subject. She is a philanthropist, an anti-waste campaigner, and teller of stories about anxiety and self-proclaimed soul nerd. I love that because I uh, I can really relate to that. I, I will go along with that proclamation. I am a soul nerd. Her book, First You Make the Beast Beautiful, reframes anxiety as a spiritual quest. But her new book, One Wild and Precious Life, The Path Back to Connection in a Fractured World, is the conversation we're continuing today. So if you missed part one, it's available on my website, wildwomanwisdom.org or on nowwithpurpose.com. We left off last time talking about how to plug ourselves back in so we can once again feel connected to this fractured world we're living in. We're picking back up today talking about the cure for loneliness. You you talk about this in the book and it, it surprised me a little bit, although not really. And that is that the cure for loneliness is aloneness, which is to say, you know, a meaningful connection to ourselves. And, and that makes so much sense to me. You know, it's the old know thyself. You talk about that, and I I think that's the big breakdown here that, you know, it's not just our connection with others, it's, it's really having a deep connection with ourselves. I agree, and I think women in particular relate to that, you know. Um, there are many books and um, sort of lines of, of cultural thinking that talk about women's need to go and sit with themselves, you know, Virginia Woolf, a room of one's own. Um, You know, it's always been, even though women are, you know, ostensibly more social creatures, more community-based, to really be able to feel our way into our lives, we need alone time. And ironically, it's the distraction and the pretend social connections that prevent us from going and being alone and, and be able to sit with ourselves. And as you will recall, Judy, early in the book, I referred to this moment in, in Slovenia. I'm in Slovenia and, you know, there's all these kind of incredible circumstances that place me in this particular cafe on a very hot summer's morning on a public holiday. And I look across and there's a woman in red, a lady in red, sitting there yeah. quietly smiling out onto the square and she's got, she hasn't touched her phone. She's not reading anything for 45 minutes. She just sits there with one coffee, just smiling and watching. And I had to go over to her and I said, what are you doing? And she said, well, on special days, you know, public holidays, I like to come and sit and just think and just be with myself. And I thought, 
It's so interesting. I said, can I take a photo of you? Which of course broke that whole sort of dynamic down because I then posted it on social media and described this interaction and, and everyone around the world were like, was like, oh my goodness, I, I just so miss that. I, I wish I could do that. And it was like we were describing this sort of lost art you know, like being able to do triple jumps on the trampoline from our childhood. There was this nostalgia for simply being able to sit there on your own. And this is what I found is that we feel somehow that we've been denied it. And really, we've denied ourselves that opportunity. I mean, really, everybody can, can find half an hour sometime in their week to go and sit on their own and not fiddle with their phone. You know, um, but we are so addicted. We are so into a particular groove of so-called individual freedom that we don't actually give ourselves individual freedom. I mean, it's, it's a horrible irony. And I try to expose that throughout the book. Yes, you do. And you do it very well. And, you know, I would say you talk about lost arts. I love what you talked about when you wrote about um, deep reading. Oh, yeah. yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, you mentioned soul nerding at the beginning of um, the introduction, and it sort of pertains to that. If 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 the enemy, if we're say, if we're going to call it that, is distraction, you know, our brains have almost rewired in and around constant distraction and these dopamine sort of tugs, you know. Um, the the antidote is to pull our minds back into a stillness and a focus. And deep reading is a really great skill for that. And what I mean by deep reading is long reads. So it might be a 3,000-word article that you clip from an amazing magazine or um, a literary journal or something like that. Or it might be beautiful uh, prose in a book or poetry. And it's the idea of actually sitting there and absorbing the words, not scanning, not skimming, and really enjoying what this artist, this person has decided to share with you. And soul nerding works to a very similar idea. It's absorbing yourself in whether it's art or classical music or whatever it might be, some sort of creation that another human has sat in their own stillness to be able to create. Because creativity can only come about when we are still and present with ourselves. And when you absorb really good reading or writing, very good art, wonderful music, it's, you can almost feel the care and the presence of the other human. It's in the, almost the gaps between things. And poetry is perfect for it. And look, um, I, I sound like I'm this bourgeois artistic person. I did not grow up this way. I grew up in a very basic household. Um, you know, my family weren't particularly educated. I grew up in the country with lots of brothers and sisters and I didn't have access to great education. And I can honestly say I did not read literature or poetry until about five years ago. I had no concept of what art was about until I stumbled upon art galleries in my travels around the world. And it'd be by accident. And I'd come across this famous artist and I had no idea who they were. And I'd just walk into a gallery in Milan or something and and learn about it. And so it was actually quite a naive, wonderful way to come, to come across it. But poetry in particular, and if we go back to Mary Oliver, who's supreme at this, she can place words on a page and it's not so much the words, it's the meaning that it creates beyond the words that allows you to connect into something that, of something that I can only describe as a recognition. Mm. A recognition of, um, and, and, and that the Summer's Day poem where she talks about that moment sitting on the grass with watching a cricket and, yeah. you know, just sort of observing the minutiae of life. And, 
and saying, I am able to do this. I'm able to watch something small. I'm able to, you know, and, and she poses this question and what will you do with your one wild and precious life? And, and it's, it's sort of the meaning that you extract from the gaps between the words and this universal collective knowingness that doesn't have to be fully articulated that we can feel this incredible rush of connection. And that's what literature and art and classical music and anything that has been done beautifully and mindfully and has stood the test of time, that is what can connect us back in, you know? Um, and I love that I've discovered it, you know, in my 40s. <laughs> I finally discover what everybody's on about with this stuff. But I think it's a beautiful practice to, and it's an antidote. It's an antidote to our fragmentation and our scattiness, which stops us from connecting. And, and another antidote is something that you talk about and live, and that is our connection with nature. Because I believe that nature is our, one of our greatest healing salves. And, yes. and when I, when I was reading your book and I have to say, you know, those books that you read when you feel like they're writing it just for you. I had mm -hmm. several of those moments reading your book. And when that happens to me, I know that what's happening is that you are really connecting with some universal truths because I'm not that unique. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we are, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so, um, you know, talk a little bit about how that happens for you in nature, because that's another way, like, like deep reading to really connect. That is my aim as a writer. I want people to read words and go, that's exactly what I was thinking the other day. So, so walking um, in nature, and I'll break it down, the walking aspect, and as you say, it's very similar to the deep reading um, in that, and I, I, this is a phrase I use quite a lot, walking and writing or reading goes at the same pace as discerning thought. Mm. So I don't type out my books. I handwrite my books. Like, and it's, um, it makes me sound like I'm sort of, you know, from the 19th century. But it, it, I do it because it actually enables me to write at a pace that my thoughts can unfurl in a very connected way rather than in an objective, top-down kind of way. And... I think it's a really wonderful way of looking at things. And I then, in the research for this book, because it was kind of almost by accident that I find myself wandering around the world with one bag. And I've been living out of one bag of belongings for 10 years. And I wrote, uh, first, We Make the Beast Beautiful, my book on anxiety while wandering around the world. And then this one, um, I also wrote um, with just one backpack and hiking in various parts of the world. And all throughout my life, to modulate and manage my anxiety, I have hiked. And sometimes it'll be at three in the morning. This was as a teenager, I worked out that this worked. And I had a post-it note on the back of my bedroom door in the group house I lived in when I first moved out of home. And it said, just walk. And if, you know, and I think the chapter's called Hike, Just Hike, uh -huh. in, in, where I explain the science as to why walking in nature works. So I've always worked, done it that way. And then, of course, I had to dig down into it expl to explain why it worked to my readers uh, for this book. So as it turns out, the pace of walking um, does modulate anxiety and discerning thought. We emerged out of the sort of primordial soup and got upright onto two feet at the same time that many of our flight or fight responses in our brain and also our sort of more sophisticated thinking emerged. So we, that left right motion 
modulates the flight or flight response. It can calm you um, in an instant. So that I found very interesting. Then I d dug down deeper and deeper. Why does it turn out that when we walk in nature that it really has this incredible effect? And there's all kinds of studies. Um, there's studies that look at the looks at the effect of awe. And in fact, just having an open um, sky above us can elevate our thinking. Um, being able to watch, and this is an interesting one, I really like this one. I mean, there's countless studies, and I sort of mention a number of them in the book and go and explore some of them um, in real life in different forests in Japan and Sierra Nevada and in LA and so on. Um, and one of them that I really love is the fact that in nature, nature is made up of all these patternings called fractals. So if you think of a fern or a daisy, they're repeated patterns um, and they're quite beautiful. That's what we find beautiful about nature. Our retinas are also, uh, you know, operate to fractals. They're made up of fractals. And so when our eyes clock another fractal in nature, there's this sense of attunement, of connection and recognition. So just watching these things um, brings us into a very connected space. I mean, that's only one layer. There's so many layers to this. And anecdotally, of course, history is peppered with thinkers, philosophers, creators who had to hike in nature to produce their best work. I very much suggest it as a salve also for that itch that we talk to. We need to go back into nature to be able to really reconnect. And one of the big aims of my book is to... Um, is to get people more connected to the climate crisis. That is the existential issue that we face. It's the elephant in the room and it's the elephant that has got so big, it is now taking up the entire room. Uh, we, can't, we can't ignore it. Um, it's bigger than anything else going on. And as I say on the back of, um, of my book, we fight to save what we love. We need to be in nature to return to our true nature, to be held and awed by it, to love it wildly, so that we will fight for it. And that is the most wonderful thing about humans. We will fight till we are, you know, until the end if it's something that we love. We will fight till the end if it's something that we love. Hmm, I think most of us would agree with that statement. Sarah Wilson started this journey to write about the climate crisis, and she is willing to fight till the end to find solutions. And next week, we'll discuss what she discovered on that front, plus some ways we can all show up to do our part. So thanks, Sarah. I've been speaking with author, activist, and philanthropist Sarah Wilson. You can learn more about Sarah and her work at sarahwilson.com. I'm Judy Ray, and you're listening to Wild Woman Wisdom on NowWithPurpose.com. So please join me on Facebook and Twitter at WildWomanWisdom.org, where you can also find all my podcasts in, in case there is something that you've missed. And if you're like me and you have an annoying inner critic to tame, I support you in that effort. Have a great week. I'm taming my inner critic. You have no power over me. I'm taming. My inner critic, knowing my worth, 